Сборник детских пьес. Марш. Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music, hosted by sommelier, that's me, Jill Mott, and radio host Emily Reese. This is my radio voice, everyone. Today we are talking about family trees in wine and classical music. Check out patreon.com slash scoresandpours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Why, hello, Emily Reese. How's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm good. I'm excited to try something I'd never heard of, Marquette. Yes, we're talking about family trees on this episode of Scores and Pours, and I wanted to talk about the family tree that is the complicated and ever-beautiful and ever-climbing vitis, the grapevine family. Nice. And you're going to speak of? Uh, we're going to focus on uh, probably not who you might expect for a family tree episode. You might expect me to talk about Johann Sebastian Bach, probably the most famous famous musical family is the Bach family. Um, there are others, and, and we'll talk about that very briefly, super briefly. Um, but today we're going to talk about a Russian composer named Dmitry Shostakovich, who uh, has a son that uh, he wrote a piano concerto for, that son was a pianist, also became a famous conductor, and so Dimitri's son also had a son, and that son is also a musician. So we're we're talking about the Shostakoviches and living, today. still living, both, uh, both yep, the Dimitri, latter two. Yeah, right? yeah, Mac, Maxim Shostakovich and his son Dimitri Shostakovich Jr. are both still living. Yes, as of the recording of this podcast. Yes, super cool. Well. Mm-hmm. Um, Let's 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 get started. Okay, sure. That's a let's times three. Yeah. There aren't six of us, I <laughs> mind you, but um, there's there's enough energy to be. So shall we? Yeah, let's do it. I'm just gonna start. Do it because please. this is it's kind of complicated. I think when we when we speak about grapevines and grapes for making wine, I don't think a lot of wine drinkers out there know that there are like different families. You know, they, they of course know the difference that there's like Sauvignon Blanc and Cabernet and Tempranillo. And today we're going to talk about the Vitis genus. So Vitis is basically, we're talking about a climbing plant, a vine that is, you know, they're very prolific. Grapevines don't want to become grapes to make wine. Right. <laughs> they just want to survive and climb yeah. into the heavens, right? Yeah. And in the genus that is Vitis, there are approximately 80 species that we know of. Okay. The most famous being Vitis vinifera, and those are the noble grapes for making wine. So okay. all of those grapes that I just mentioned and thousands more, well, I should say hundreds more that we okay. know of. Okay. Um, some people say that there are as many as four to 500. Some people think that there are a thousand plus noble Vitis vinifera varietals. And those are, the, those are the most popular. Why? They grow in temperate regions. They have all of the complexities and they have the, you know, they're finicky, but they, they are able to make the most quote unquote complex wines. Okay. 
We're not going to talk about those today because <laughs> we talk about those in almost every show. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about the most popular of other species and one of which we're going to taste today, which is super fun. I am excited for that. Do you want to give us just a just start flirting with Shostakovich? Uh, sure. We'll focus on Dmitry Shostakovich today because uh, of a really famous piece that he wrote for his son, Maxim, and for Maxim's 19th birthday, Shostakovich wrote him a piano concerto. So we'll talk a little bit about that, what makes that piano concerto special, what makes the Shostakovich family special, and and all of that. I just, it would have been, I don't want to say easy to talk about Johann Sebastian Bach and his family. Um, he he was he descended from uh, musicians who were working musicians, and then he also had many children and uh, four of his sons went on to become, uh, you know, composers that are still heard from today. So that's mm-hmm. a prolific musical family tree, definitely. There's also the Strauss family with Johann yeah. Strauss, his father, his brothers. Um, uh, what was the other one I mentioned at the beginning? The Mendelssohns. We talked about the Mendelssohns. We'll talk about the Men- we will talk about the Mendelssohns in our next volume of Family Tree because okay. I like their uh, special relationship, a brother and sister. And uh, another uh, good example is uh, Joseph Haydn had a famous brother composer, Michael mm-hmm. Haydn, that a lot of people aren't aware of. So there are, there are some musical families out there, and, um, but I really just wanted to talk about Shostakovich today. Did, did Dimitri, f- f- the, the main senior, senior yeah. thank you, did he descend from any musical, like, was there music in his family before? I, I don't think so, but I also, I'm not 100% sure. Yeah, he. I mean, he learned from his mom, so she had some musical ability for sure. Um, so you know, whenever you hear that, you just assume they they did grow up around around music, and and that was his first piano teacher. So Shostakovich uh, had initially a daughter named Galina. She played piano as well, but didn't become a professional musician. But we'll also hear music that he wrote for Galina when she was a little tiny youngster learning how to play piano. So Dude, let's listen to something. Oh, cool. Let's well, why, why don't we just listen in. to that? Yeah, right dive away. Right in. Yeah. So Galina was the oldest of Shostakovich's children. Shostakovich was married, I think, three times. Uh, so when Galina was learning how to play piano, Shostakovich would write her a piece. Once she learned how to play one, he'd write her another. And it was kind of this little game. And so these piano pieces by Shostakovich are, you know, they're made for a youngster to play. Mm-hmm. And they're just fun to hear because they're very shostakovich but they're still like super... For a youngster, yeah, like play. me. I'll, yeah. I'll learn that right away. Yeah, so I mean, it's safe to say if you're not familiar when Shostakovich lived, although we did say that Maxim, his son, is still alive, so you can infer some things. But uh, Shostakovich Sr. was born in 1906 and he died in 1975. Uh, this music that he wrote for his daughter, it's called Children's Notebook. And he wrote that in the mid-40s. So here's, uh, let's just listen to the very first one uh, from Children's Notebook. It's called March. Shostakovich himself introduces the pieces, which is super cool. Sbornik detskich pies. Marsh. Okay, maybe I'll learn this one. <laughs> So what I love about that is it's like this little pedagogical adventure, this tiny little, like not even a full minute long piece, right? It's not even a half a minute long. And he's teaching her like hand independence in there and giving her this fun little melody. And there's just 
I love it. I just love that he wrote her these little tiny ditties. So do you want to hear another one? Yeah, I was going to ask if we could listen to Sad Tale. Yeah. Number five, because it's it's just yes. so different. Here's Sad Tale by Dmitry Shostakovich, written for his daughter Galina. I just like that he, you know, he includes something that is in with this sort of timbre, you know, this sort yeah. of like tone. Yeah, it's um, very instead serious. of making it all like March and the Clockwork Doll yeah. that follows, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So good. So, Marquette. Tell me about Marquette. Marquette. Well, I wanted to to talk about a few different species just to give people ideas of why they exist in the world of wine, because they do, other than Vitis vinifera. We have, for example, Vitis labrusca. Okay. Not Lambrusco. Right. Labrusca. And Labrusca is mainly found in kind of the northeastern part of the United States, Canada, um, and it's known for being, you know, it's cold hardy, obviously, like um, you're not going to plant a lot of Cabernet. Yes, global warming has changed some things, but Cabernet Franc specifically, but like a lot of the grapes that we know in Europe wouldn't fare well in whether it's Minnesota, New York, you know, up in Canada where they're growing grapes. And so Labrusca is really well known for having this kind of slightly like overly fruity nature. Like think of Concord grapes. Okay. okay? Is a is a type of Labrusca. And when we think of Labrusca, we think of like the main element besides kind of table grapes or making some really juicy, fun wine for the household. Labrusca is known for its rootstock. And why that's important, Phylloxera is a louse that I've mentioned on the show before, mm -hmm. that it lives on grape vines, roots specifically. It feeds off of them. It injects saliva. And years later, you're ending up with a vineyard that's completely abolished because this louse has killed the whole thing. What they found is species like Labrusca don't have a problem with they're not susceptible to phylloxera, Interesting. whereas vinifera is. Yeah. So what they'll do is they'll take a cabernet, a graft of that, uh, you know, a cutting, mm -hmm. and they'll graft that onto labrusca rootstock, and then they'll plant that in France or you know, even United States, Mexico, wherever. Okay. And um, the rootstock for labrusca has really good compatibility with a lot of vinifera species. So that's what. Besides making wine and making kind of a juicy, simpled in wine, Labrusca is known for its rootstock capabilities. Um, so you graft that together and they blend together into a new plant yep. that has a hardier rootstock than would have otherwise. Well, it has a not only a hardier rootstock, but it has a phylloxera-resistant rootstock. Right. Okay. And then it does kind of, it doesn't really turn into a different plant, but it 
they kind of become one, okay. really. Cool. Um, and when we think of all of these different species that I'll talk about today, what's what's interesting is the rootstock com- compatibility is is really it's really interesting because you have to think of what species, what specific type of vine that is that is a riparia or is a labrusca or is a rupestris. What is their rootstock like to be able to suck nutrients up and then to be able to transfer it to, say, a Cabernet, okay. you know, Cabernet cutting? And so a lot of different types of these different species yeah. have different capabilities, you know, different. So which is which is really interesting. I wanted to talk about We'll we'll just go right into hybrids and then I'll go back to um, I'll go back to species because I want to taste wine. <laughs> so let me pour this guy, and this is a grape. It's a hybrid grape, and what a hybrid grape is is you've taken part of a say Labrusca, you've taken a, a species that is not vinifera, and you've crossed it with a vinifera. So in this case, um, Marquette was. Um, invented right around like 2006 or so is when it was released into the world. And Marquette is a cross between a grape called Minnesota 1094 and Ravat 262. Okay. Now, both of those are hybrids, which means both of those have a, you know, they have a species that's non-vinifera. Yeah. And then they have a vinifera somewhere in their lineage. And Ravat 262 is the grandchild of Pinot Noir. Pinot Noir, two links from that. Okay. So that's where, you know, you get the possibility of some more complexity. But the other portions of Marquette is known for being very cold-hardy, obviously developed in the University of Minnesota, planted, you know, in chilly areas like Vermont, like Minnesota, like Wisconsin. And... I'll just get this in my glass here before I blah, blah, blah and get parched. <laughs> Pardon me. Don't mind if I do. <laughs> so I love this because in this case, we have Minnesota 94 was a riparia. And we'll, I'll talk about riparia in a moment. Vitis riparia. So instead of Vitis vinifera yeah. or Vitis labrusca, this is Vitis riparia. 1094, Minnesota 1094 has that in its lineage along with some other, some vinifera species. But why did they develop Marquette? They developed Marquette because it's, you know, has resistance to a lot of different fungus that, that you know, are in the wine world. Mildews, we call them mildews. So like powdery mildew, downy mildew, black rot. You know, we're a really humid place. Vermont, a lot of these places that are growing Marquette around Toronto and that area, I mean, let's face it, Great Lakes, the ocean, these are humid places, and rot is a big problem. Mm. That's one reason, obviously, because they're cold-hardy. That's known for being quite high in sugar content, and that doesn't mean it's going to be a sweet wine. It can be. A lot of crap is made in really <laughs> sweet fashion. Yeah. But like it means that there's going to be a lot of available sugars for your yeast to ferment, and it has moderate amounts of acidity, so it's not known for being, like, you know, blazingly high acidity. So let's give it a smell, and we'll talk about it. It's a scores and pours. Scores and pours. I smell um, fingernail polish remover, just the tiniest bit. Yeah, there's a little bit of VA for sure. Yeah. And this is from, before we get into, well, no, let's just smell it first. I'm... (laughs) I'm all wanting to get to who it is and why they're making wine, but 
The color is interesting too because it looks like it's got a slight amount of like, you know, a lot of times when I have Marquette, um, because they can have some stabilizers for color added, there's not a lot of natural Marquette around there, around the world. And so you'll get this kind of sappy, Malbec-y, kind of purpley, ruby looking, like really intense color. And this looks like it's actually got some oxidated color, you know, like some mm-hmm. browning, some brick without yes. being like aged. Yeah, you know? yeah. I get a little undertone of like dried, dried fruit. Like dried red currants, dried black currants, dried blackberries. Like instead of being fresh, remember when we yeah. had that? Um, yeah, I can see that. That Lopeteria yes. that we just released on our first episode. For those of you who listen to that, it's got a little bit of those kind of dried fruit components as opposed to super fresh, which is also not well known with Marquette because there's not a lot of natural stuff out there. Wow, weird. <laughs> it's very acidic. Really acidic. Surprisingly super acidic. So this is from. A dear friend of mine who makes some of the best cider in the state. Um, they're located down in Dundas, which is south of Minneapolis, about 30, 40 miles, 30 miles or so. Keepsake cidery. Nate and Tracy are great apple growers and making t- consistently delicious cider. Nate wants to make some wine. And, you know, <laughs> people that are in this business sometimes get, um, they want to exceed, you know, they want to. They push themselves, right? Sure. And, but I can tell Nate always, like, the wheel's churning, right? He wants to, like, where am I going to get some local grapes? And so he bought some uh, local juice from a guy, some Marquette juice, fermented it through some of his own Marquette in there to, like, whole cluster ferment. Um, I think he said there was, like, about a 10-day maceration and then just literally fermented and aged in demijohn. So, like, glass, oh. glass jars. Like, think of carboys for... Um, making beer. This is like a little different version, but they're like squat vases for huh. um, a very old school way of making wine in Demijohn. And cool. Um, some natural winemakers in Vermont are doing a lot of work in Demijohn. So see, now that it has had some air, it smells totally different. Yeah. That, yeah. Uh, and a lot of times that is called blowing off. Like, okay. oh, the, the, the nail polish remover, that volatile acidity can blow off, they'll say. And sometimes it just needs air. It's like when mm-hmm. you get out of a plane and you're like, Good God. Especially now during COVID, you like rip that mask off the minute you get outside and those jet fumes taste, they smell so good because you're just like, I just don't want to smell my own breath anymore. Yeah. Like, you know, this just needs to air out a little bit. Yeah. Wow. It smells kind of talky. It's so interesting. Do you notice that kind of fruity sappiness though? Yes. Like even though it's not thick and not glycerol, it's like- Yes. It wants to be sappy even though it's not? It is a little though. It's a thick- thicker drink. So that's very characteristic of hybrids. Okay. Um, I can't say I've had many hybrids that I can think of off the top of my head that don't have that kind of cool fruity sappiness. I like it. It it definitely tastes not like a normal red wine, which I don't even <laughs> But that's exactly what, that's exactly, I like to hear you say that because it's really common descriptor when people have like you know, sappy local hybrids, especially if they're made in like a natural vein, you know, there are a lot of people that are making Marquette, Marshall Foch, Sauval Blanc, and then they're putting in a Cabernet yeast so that it will taste Hmm. more noble or Cabernet-y or give off those esters. And then you're just, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not cool. You know that aftertaste you get after you have like Welch's grape juice? Yeah. That I have. 
Yeah. I haven't brought that up for a while because I haven't had it for a while, but I definitely have that now. Like, yeah, or like I feel of, like I just took communion at church. That's what it reminds me of, like mm-hmm. Concord, like Manischewitz, but not in a bad way. Right, no. Like it's just, yeah, yeah. Like, it's grapey. F- grapey. Yeah. Yep, super grapey, <laughs> which, is, which is cool. So I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about the riparia, so the- The other half. The other half of, well, the other could be quarter um, <laughs> of the hybrid. I don't want to- complicate things too bad, but talk about a couple different species um, cool. that is not Labrusca. Wonderful. Uh, when 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 we come back after we shot <laughs> Shostakovich some more. So let's talk about Maxim Shostakovich, Maxim Shostakovich. He was born in 1936, and as we said, he's still alive. Uh, Maxim went to a performance when he was a little boy of his father's symphony, known as the Leningrad Symphony. And when he saw that performance, Maxime decided he wanted to be a conductor. So he told his father, he's like, I want to be a conductor. And his dad was like, cool, but learn piano first, which is so the right thing to do. So he was like so smart to do that. And so that's what Maxime did. He studied piano. He learned music theory. He learned all the inner workings of, of music. Uh, not to say that other conductors who aren't pianists don't do that. But, but you know what's what's cool about that is, do you know how many friends I know, people in the business that are like, I want to go make some wine. And it's yeah. like, okay, well, learn some science, <laughs> learn some intuition, yeah. go, go grow something, mm-hmm. go be in a vineyard for a while, know what's, you know, because it's just like making yeah. wine sounds a certain way. Yep. And the obviously fruits of the labor, no pun intended, yeah. are delicious, but like, in order to get there, it takes a lot of understanding. Yes, and and I will say that you know there's always exceptions to that rule. There of are course. always you know brilliant-minded musicians who still can't read a note of music, things like that. I mean, it, it runs the gamut when it comes to an artistic pursuit, right? Yeah. Um, but that was what Dimitri Senior told his son Maxime: learn piano first, and then you can conduct to your heart's desire. And that's that's what he did. So when Maxime went to the Moscow Conservatory to study. Uh, and he turned 19, his father presented him with this piano concerto. It was the second piano concerto that Shostakovich wrote. And it's full of the wit and surprise and humor that uh, peppers a lot of Shostakovich's music. Shostakovich uh, lived in Russia in a really shitty time in history and lived through very difficult, bloody protests and massacres uh, was constantly either on the in with the government or on the out with the government. There were stretches of time where he would sleep in the hallway of his family's apartment complex because he was worried they'd wake him, they'd wake the family when they came to take him away to prison. I mean, it just like constant fear of the government, right? Mm-hmm. So his uh, music still, though, always was about humanity and people. And for some reason, that just made me very emotional. Uh, but his his music still managed to have this beautiful humor in it, even though he just was faced with tragic horrors all the time. One of the special things about Shostakovich is he never defected. He never left. Uh, where virtually every other 20th century Russian or Soviet composer did leave. Uh, Stravinsky left. Prokofiev left. His son uh, Maxim left, defected right? in the yeah. 80s um, and was granted asylum in the U.S. And so Maxim lived in America for quite uh, a few decades. And I think he lives back in, in Russia now. But um, 
did uh, get asylum here in the 80s after defecting in West Germany. And uh, so that's a little bit about that whole situation. Yeah. But let's listen to this piano concerto. Um, let's just listen to a little bit of the first movement. And you'll just hear, uh, there's, it's just joyful music. Shostakovich uh, wrote some of the heaviest, most tragic sounding music in the world, but also just joyful stuff. So here we go. A little bit of the first movement. recording is really special because this recording features the piano concerto number two by Dmitry Shostakovich, performed by his grandson, Dmitry Shostakovich Jr., conducted by Maxim Shostakovich. So it's this beautiful Whoa. example. I mean, Whoa. seriously, you don't get stuff like that anywhere. It's just such a cool thing to have grandfather father and grandson. Can we listen to the second movement just a little bit? Oh, yeah. Heck just yeah. Just like a little bit. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's their normal, right? But, like, to carry on that legacy and to have that in your blood and to know that that's important to the rest of the world. Um, And you and I were speaking about this uh, when we were getting ready for this episode, and you were kind of, you know, kind of just musing and thinking, who who do you want to focus on? And you were like, God, they still, there's still lineage there that there isn't for the majority of the classical. Right like genius composers out yeah, there yeah know, which is yeah a gift to humanity it is it's a beautiful thing and maxime has said many times how he feels so passionately that it's his duty to share his father's music with the world and granted before maxime started doing that his father was an internationally famous com- composer i mean it wasn't like maxime is the reason that yeah. his father's music is famous but but he certainly did has made sure that pretty much everything Shostakovich wrote is published. And that's due to Maxime. Whatever wasn't published during Dmitri's life uh, was published because of Maxime. And uh, he just, he, he also, it's really important to, to point out though, Maxime is not a specialist in only his father's music. Like yeah. Maxime can conduct Mahler or he can conduct a Brandenburg concerto by Bach from 300 years earlier. What What about, um, do you happen to know, did Dimitri Jr., mm-hmm. was he all, like, from the get-go? Was he like, I want to... Piano. Play? And I ask that because in the wine world, you know, there are a lot of sons and daughters who feel the pressure from the family to Definitely. do that, and they don't, yep. don't want to be mm-hmm. in wine or in that business or, mm-hmm. you know, stuck to the stuck living in the sticks if that's where you know the rural yeah. vineyard is but like 
it's it's really great when they're because right now I can think of so many winemakers who their sons and daughters really want to carry that torch, mm-hmm. and that's just a gift to us all. You know, yeah, it is, especially during times like this to have music like this or or wine like this to be able to just reflect. They they help us reflect on other bigger things. You know, yeah, um, yeah, so. it really does. Well, we'll listen to more of it in a bit, but let's talk more about Marquette and learn about its lineage. Okay, so I, I'm going to talk about Riparia, which is like we know that Riparia is part of the lineage, but I wanted to actually talk about the the, the species that is Riparia. So growing principally in the eastern United States, northern United States, like Labrusca, specifically known in Canada and Quebec. But this is, we call this like the riverbank grapevine, like a lot of Riparia grows along lakes and around along riverbanks and in like more humid areas like in the wild in the wild yeah like acclimated to that and this is extremely cold hardy so granted you know we talked about labrusca being cold hardy and marquette being part riparia riparia grapes are known to have survived winters of negative 60 plus degrees fahrenheit negative 70 degrees plus Fahrenheit, whereas like your Cabernet vine, <laughs> lo siento, does not have a chance, you know. Um, and some examples of Riparia, like 100% Riparia. So for those of you who are living here in Minnesota and you've experienced Marshall Foch, you've experienced Frontenac, Frontenac Gris, wines like that, or grapes like that, I should say, those are 100%, those are Riparia. Their rootstock is very, also very well known for being compatible with vinifera to, to graft onto. And some really great producers I just wanted to mention, in Vermont specifically, I can think of, and I would go into Canadian wines, but they're even less available. You know, their availability is like super scarce here. The ones I'm going to mention have a little bit more production, or or you can find them a little bit easier, but that's still really difficult because production's so low. Is um, two women winemakers out of well Vermont and Texas, which sounds kind of weird, but in Vermont there's a woman by the name of Deidre Heakin, and I've mentioned her on the show before. She has a project with her partner called uh, La Garagista, and from the get go. They come from this, these beginnings of they love Italian wines, love the idea of like, you know, grow, eat what you grow, make wine from something you can have in your area. So instead of planting flipping Nebbiolo that they loved and Barbera that they loved, when they decided to like have this farm aspect, have this cantina, have a small little cafe that you were going to serve food out of that you grew, they were like, Let's not plant those. Let's plant grapes that grow here. So they yeah. planted Marquette and Frontenac and stuff like that. And they're making, like, I just drank my last bottle in my cellar a couple of days ago, and I'm, like, kicking myself. But, like, <laughs> world-class wine out of hybrids. She had a protege who came to work with her, and I don't think she knew at the time she wanted to make wine forever, but Krista Scruggs, another great example of an amazing winemaker, female winemaker, again, who... Now she's making wine in Texas and in Vermont, but only from hybrids. And they're flipping delicious and they're wild and crazy and like lustrous and all these, you know, these things we don't hardly have adjectives for because they taste so different. <laughs> um, but mostly Riparia uh, cool. and hybrids, which is which is really cool. Neat. So um, maybe I'll talk about one yeah. more. So we, I've talked about Labrusca, Vinifera. Riparia, mm-hmm. the last 
species that I'm going to talk about because obviously we don't have time for 80. And <laughs> a lot of them are, honestly aren't made into wine. Rupestris, known for being very drought resistant. So in areas like, you know, the southern part of the United States, Rupestris is favored um, over other grapes. It's known in places like Missouri, places like Alabama. You know, I mean, all 50 states grow grapes these days for making wine. I think every state has a winery. And just a little bit of trivia, hands up all of you listeners who know where the first AVA, the region, the, govern, the governed region for wine was, not California, folks, not Oregon, not New York. Where? Missouri. <laughs> just to throw that in there. Okay. Um, Rupestris, very uh, resistant to fungal diseases. That's kind of a common theme. And a hybrid that is very popular as a vinifera crossed with Rupestris is Saval, Saval Blanc. It happened, I think it happened in France originally, but has really, as you know, American grape growers have really taken a liking to it. So that's another one you'll find. I may have mentioned hybrid somewhere, Saval, and if I threw it in the Riparia camp to confuse you all, <laughs> take it out and put it in the <laughs> Rupestris camp. Those are just four species of vitis that, it, you know, they're super interesting to read more about. And when you look online, vitis or, you know, grape varietals, and you start to look under genus and then subspecies, it's like, there are so many that you've never heard of. And I, I got this book like years ago that was published in like 1920s and it was just like when like all of these like crossings and species were being really heavily studied in in just like very novel ways it wasn't like let's do all the science and crossing and stuff physically but yeah and it was like fascinating back then what they knew about all these different species of grapes so cool. yeah if you're in the mood for some Light reading. <laughs> Go read about the family tree that is Vitus because it is delightful. Nice. And almost as sweet tarty as what I just put in my mouth. You want another little splash? Yeah, I do. I can't get over how sweet tarty it is. It's great. I'm going to pour kind of from on high a little chocolina style. There you go. Just to kind of yeah. air that out a little faster. Yeah. It's just so different. I just am blown away. What would you want to eat with this? I feel like I'd eat a burger with it. Yeah. I think a fatty, burger would a be really fattier. good. Yeah. What about like a burger made out of ribeye meat? Well, I mean, come on. Who wouldn't want that? <laughs> <laughs> Emily just laughs. Like I'm just going to hit stop and go buy that right now. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's amazing. Mm. Should we talk more Shostakovich? Please. One of the f most fun parts about the piano concerto that Dmitry Shostakovich wrote for his son is that... He put piano exercises in the middle of the third movement, actually several times, as a little wink joke, because pianists who are learning to play are practicing these really repetitive exercises, and we'll put examples in of what those sound like from uh, a very famous set of exercises by a composer named Hannon, and those sound like this. So Shostakovich does that in this third movement of this piano concerto, which is hilarious and wonderful and stands out like a sore thumb, but in the best possible way. So let's listen to a little bit of the beginning of the third movement, and then we'll fast forward to the, to the finger exercise part, which is really cute. Thank you. 
If that wine was a song, it'd be this, for sure. He just, Shostakovich just places these finger exercises through the whole thing, which is great. Oh, Super fun. Such a beautiful piece. It's great. And that second movement, I mean, that second movement to me is one of the most beautiful things he wrote. And he even was self-deprecating about this piece of music, saying that it was, oh, what did he say? He said um, that the second piano concerto had no redeeming artistic moments. Now, Shostakovich was very self-deprecating anyway. And might have been, you know, just like kind of beating the critics to it by saying this isn't a very serious work. But I mean, I don't know. I think it's pretty great. I mean, if you can make exercises sound like that. I know, right? also see where, you know, I don't know, maybe Nate would say about this wine, he'd say, man, this isn't like the best hybrid in the world. I'm just mm-hmm. trying, you know, I'm just having fun with it and doing my best and yeah. learning more yeah. than anything learning, right. And putting something yeah. out there in the world. And mm-hmm. so, you know, if Shostakovich is just putting out a finger exercise that sounds nice, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't need to be the most, maybe it's not the most artistic, you know, yeah. maybe it isn't as, you know, you thought about something and then you know an element of his life and a time in his life and then you listen to something and you got frequent whereas maybe if you would have thought of that moment and listened to that you wouldn't have been you know (laughs) exactly So much life. It's just life. Yeah. It's like this it's like this wine. Yeah. So filled with life. Yes. Which which pardon the interlude of me Go ahead. going to talk about this wine because I th- what makes you know, we were like, wow, it's so acidic. It's kind of got this type of finish and that, you know, and it for better or worse, it's kind of but I don't mean this as a as a with negative sentiment or as a pejorative, you know? Yeah. It like doesn't it's kind of discombobulated. And I think what's interesting about hybrids and kind of, you know, the world embarking on making natural hybrids is we're used to making hybrids like Cabernet. Yeah. Or we're used to making, or like Vinifera, we're used to making hybrids with fake yeasts or whatever, whatever. And so when we're making it in this more natural vein, it's really hard to get under our belts. Like this is a totally different species, right? It's like, it's like, you know, us as Americans in going to a foreign country and we just act like Americans. You just don't do that. You know, I mean, be proud if you want, but you like try to acclimate to their, you know, people eat dinner later in certain countries or they take coffee at this time or whatever. And I think with grape varietals, what we're learning with 
specifically hybrids or different species, is that if we're going to make wine out of them, we kind of have to adjust. We can't really make them just like we're making vinifera. We mm-hmm. need to make in order for them to try to achieve more of a balance or more of a kind of yeah. you know coalescing. So mm-hmm. oh, just an interesting thing I thought about as I tasted this, and we're like, whoa, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I got. I that's got that what I in got. my family tree. I'm good. Yeah. Little so, Shostakovich. So you can check out Dmitry Shostakovich Jr. as a pianist. I mean, who knows now? But uh, Maxime, not really conducting much anymore, but there are dozens of recordings of him conducting, not just his father's works, but uh, he's got a very well-established musical career under his belt as well. So, And what we just listened to, that last, the finger exercises, yeah. that was Dmitry Jr., correct? Yes. Hammering away. Yep. At a tempo that is pretty sprightly. I mean, it's usually not quite that fast. Yeah. (laughs) It's impressive. He has a little bit of extra Shasta in his Kovic, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Exactly. Uh, Well, here's to Family Tree Volume 1. We're going to do Family Tree Volume 2. I'm going to talk about some one of my favorite varietals and just its lineage Mm -hmm. and talk about a few different popular lineages in the episode to come that is Volume 2. Great. And you're going to talk about I'm going to talk about a brother and a sister uh, from the Romantic era. Yep. To the family tree that is Vitus. Marquette to Shostakovich. To scores and pours. Thank you for listening to Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours, and we're on Instagram at scoresandpours. If you've made it this far, it means you like the show. So consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media, Inc.